Hey everybody, my name is Aaron Lowe, and each week I find my head has been surgically removed from my body and then placed onto the shoulder of another friend and movie lover. Together, we are given a theme, sometimes cryptic and sometimes specific, and then it is up to us to each pick a film that we think fits that theme, watch, and discuss. This is The Incredible Two-Headed Podcast. Welcome back. Today, we've got another fun show lined up for you, and I'm pretty excited to get into it. So without further ado, let's meet our guest and host body, Jacob Davison. Jacob, how's it going? Going well. So happy to be uh, a part of the podcast. I'm really happy to have you on as well. Just to give a little bit of backstory here, you and I kind of just know each other through Twitter. It, it, it's a very similar to uh, Johnny Duarte, who was on a few episodes back where we, we know each other basically through our mutual uh, enjoyment of the cinematic void movies screenings that have been happening during lockdown. Oh yes. Well, that was the thing. Uh, you know, I went to the cinematic void screenings uh, regularly when they were, you know, actually in theaters uh, in the before times. So, <laughs> you know, I felt like there was a sense of community there. So it has been interesting uh, that, Cinematic Boy has been doing the online screenings and there's been, you know, still keeping up that sense of cinematic community, but also online. So it's an even wider reach now. I am super happy that he decided to keep doing these. I, they were doing they were weekly at first. And when he, they started doing them, I was so happy because I only got to go to the, like I, I've said this all before, but I only got to go to the one screening before before lockdown happened. And mm. I'm very happy that it it continued basically because of just how much fun I was having or everything about it looked. And also, you know, all the cool people I've I've met now or or, or can kind of communicate with uh, centered around these screenings because there's always some, you know, fun live tweeting. And there's a lot of people now I think I've I've really uh, I've really gotten to know and like due to this uh, this lockdown and their screenings. Cool. But yeah, big shout out to Jim uh, Jim Branscombe, uh, the man in charge of Cinematic Wood. Yeah, he yeah no definitely he's he puts out a good product. I, I like all those screenings and and his podcast. You know all of the the shirts and merchandise. I I, <laughs> <laughs> I have a couple of the shirts. They I think I got the, not, uh, I think I've got nine Cinematic Wood shirts now. Uh, they they're really well designed. I, I he he oh doing, yeah he he gets a lot of shout outs on this show. Yeah, I have the one that I for the one I went to the January Giallo. And of course, I had to get one of the. Oh yeah. I had to get one of the Cinemadness up all night, up all night shirts, just as kind of a keepsake of these very, very bizarre times. Yeah, always had the memories. Uh, it's funny. And funnily enough, I'm wearing my um, Cinematic Void Vestron shirt, and like you know, he made he made a shirt that was kind of modeled yeah. after the Vestron logo. Let me look. Oh, I, well, this is no surprise to anybody. I'm wearing a Twin Peaks T-shirt right now. <laughs> Perfect. So we have this note that we've been given and the theme looks like, you know, it's pretty clear, gives us a lot of options to choose from. The theme is found footage. So hey. how about we, we take a, a little brief break here and then we get right into it. Sounds like a plan. 
持ち悪い声っていうのは私は赤ちゃんの赤ちゃんのなんでそんな言い方ができるみんなにはね投資をやってもらいます気がついたらその模様を描いちゃってるんですよ東京都練馬区にある広沼公園で視察しましたかぐたばの呪いかぐたばかぐたばことかぐたばとかぐたばってはなかぐたばさっきなんか映像がおかしくなったんですけど。So we're back, and our first film today is Nuroi The Curse, which is a 2005 Japanese found footage horror film presented as the edited footage of paranormal researcher Masafumi Kobayashi, played by Jin Muraki, as he investigates strange occurrences for a documentary. The film shifts focus several times, bringing together Kobayashi, a young girl who demonstrates psychic abilities on a variety television program, a borderline psychotic man who covers every surface he can with tinfoil to keep out ectoplasmic worms, and an actress who has been experiencing strange phenomenon ever since appearing on a reality TV show about ghost hunting. And always along the edges of the story are a mysterious woman and her young child. Now, this is a, a movie that was hard to. Get in America for a while. It, it, I guess,、uh, the company that released it went bankrupt. I, I forgot to look up all of the details, but I, I think the distributor went bankrupt. So it never really got an American release, although it was, it was definitely like a popular film among horror fans and people that you know, knew to look beyond maybe what was on the shelves at the video store, certainly beyond the shelves of Blockbuster. I didn't see this until Shudder picked it up. How, how about you? I, I know this is. A favorite of yours. When did you first see this movie?、Uh, you know, honestly, I'm having trouble remembering exactly. I think I rented it in college or.、Uh, no, no, wait. I, I think I saw it several years ago. I, I'm a big fan of this horror artist、uh, who goes by the handle Slimy Swamp Ghost on Twitter,、uh, Trevor Henderson.、Uh, he's been a champion of the movie for a long time. And. You know, I'm always a fan of found footage. So I, th- I think I must have rented it online or maybe I, look, maybe I found it on YouTube. I, I, again, I don't exactly remember, but I definitely remember seeing Noroi because, you know, like every, you know, just、uh, there, there are always movies people consider the scariest, but, you know, undoubtedly this. Is a scary as hell movie. This is my second time watching it. I'm, I'm really, really glad you recommended it because the first time I had seen it, I don't think I gave it its proper due. I, I kind of saw it and I, I just mentally lumped it in with、uh, some of the other Japanese horror films that were coming around the time. It, it, although it, it, it definitely had a different angle with you know, the documentary aspect、mm. of it. And the movie is, is found footage, but it is, it is actually presented as a documentary. Unlike a lot of other found footage, which try to seem like maybe raw footage, this is kind of an edited documentary up to a certain point. There's actually even fake credits for the documentary within it. That was, that was an aspect that I thought was an interesting wrinkle on kind of that J horror of the late 90s, early 2000s. But I, I think when I first saw it, I maybe compared it unfavorably to others because it does have some. Similarities, especially to, I think, the Juon series. But watching it this second time, 
I don't know what I was thinking. I don't, I don't know why I didn't see it as kind of this work of work of genius, I guess that it was, that it is. Cause it, it does mix traditional Japanese horror elements, like the passing of the curse, almost like it's a physical disease. It has the spooky kids, but it also mixes in elements of Lovecraft and a very strong vibe of, of folk horror of a style that I'm not used to seeing out of Japan, really. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of the um, the mystics and the shamans and the rituals that they do are a big part of this movie. I mean, it's a really interesting, really interesting mix. And it comes at the horror from such a unique angle when compared to other movies of that time that I, I don't know why, like the first time I saw it, it this didn't just strike me as a, a like an amazing movie. But now i like having seen it a second time i am very much a fan of this film yeah i, I think it actually took a little bit to grow on me too because yeah for, for some reason yeah the first time i saw it i mean i thought it was scary but it didn't quite hook me as much but when i saw it again later you know just uh, it, a lot of the more intense elements uh just stood out more to me like uh one of my favorite parts is um uh when uh kobayashi is uh, I, f- I forget exactly what he was doing but he, he was uh like interviewing some people for a part of his documentary and he goes to this uh neighborhood woman and his daughter and talks to them and there's this sudden subtitle afterward that the mother and daughter died mysteriously in a car crash a few days after the interview. <laughs> and yeah, just, and just something about that, you know, like with mixing the uh, documentary style with these just incredible horror cues and tension building, uh, just, re- just really make it effective as a horror film. I-, I have to admit that that moment that you called out, I have that in my notes as well. Cause he's talking and he, he's, it's the first time we hear about, She's talking about how she hears baby babies crying mm. and it it's the the mysterious woman and her young child and they show up a few times and you know there's this common complaint that people hear babies crying from where they're at and yeah it it he's talking to them and then the camera kind of freezes on a shot of them outside in front of their house and the subtitle comes up 3 days later they were killed and I have that actually written in my note as something that was unintentionally funny to me it just seemed like such a sudden a sudden and kind of like callous way to put that up there i'm not saying that that's a bad thing well you know that's the thing they say about horror and comedy it's all yeah. about timing sometimes it's just the timing of something strikes me as a joke and it might not actually be a, a joke part of what this this movie is maybe maybe on my first viewing i was a little bit confused by it just because it like I said, it shifts perspective quite a bit. I mean, it's all kind of yeah. it's all kind of through Kobayashi, but we're getting multiple sources of information. Like there's clips from other television shows, there's news clips, there's uh, videos shot by other people. At first, especially when it gets to the the actress, they go to a shrine and. Yes, that's uh, Marika Matsumoto, who it took me a while to realize she's actually uh, actually playing herself. She's she's an actress in Japan, and uh, in this, she's playing a uh, version of herself. Yeah, which is, well, we, we can get to that in a second, but that's actually kind of a theme with this director's work. Koji Shiraishi, he, he's done that a few more times since this. 
mm. um, this being his first film. But I, 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 I was just saying, like, especially that scene where it, it took me a minute to realize what was going on. Not, I mean, not, not what was going on in the scene, but I was like, it's not immediately clear what some of these things have to do with each other. And th that's another thing it kind of has in common with folk horror, where I'm thinking, I'm thinking like the, the Wicker Man or even kind of uh, Ben Wheatley's newer stuff. Or if we're talking about newer stuff, Ben Wheatley has done this in a few films where where we're kind of following a thread and we might not always know what's going on. But once it's done, then we see how like kind of the the trap has been laid for us throughout the movie. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know. It just didn't like like I keep saying it didn't immediately make itself apparent to me on a initial viewing. But on a second viewing, I could kind of see what the movie was doing. And it it all just worked for me. I, I thought it was really great. Yeah, I think I think that's the thing that uh, it's a lot more complicated than the average found footage movie because, well, even in the style, like you were saying, it's kind of a hodgepodge. It's a collection of different uh, footage, you know, even recordings from daytime TV shows and the talk shows mixed with other uh, found footage recordings from people just wandering about. Uh, and usually, you know, the narratives just like one movie or like one set of characters filming something, you know, like uh, the Blair Witch Project. Uh, but it, it is interesting that it just comes from so many different angles in this uh, particular story. And I think, I think that's the thing, you know, it's a bit of a puzzle. And, you know, the first time around, if you don't pick up on all the bits and pieces, it's not as disturbing. But the more you are able to pick up on, the more terrifying it gets. It definitely, and I actually want to watch it again because I, I still feel like there's a couple of things that I'm not entirely clear on, and I, I shouldn't say it that way because that 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 means I should bring up some specifics, and I can't right now. But I, I just still feel like there's more to be discovered in this movie. Oh yeah, no, no, that's that's the thing. There's so many layers to it, and this 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 is what I feel uh, works with these types of found footage movies is that. It's sort of a bait and switch. Like, again, going back to the Blair Witch Project, what makes that movie so effective is that, you know, it's called the Blair Witch Project, so you expect, oh, they get attacked by a witch or something, but no, no it's well, it's worse than that. You know, and it's something unknowable. Like, uh, do, you, do you mind if I get into uh, Kagutaba? No, we, we can go whatever, and we're, oh, I guess I should tell people we will be spoiling aspects of this. You can find this movie if you want. It is on Shudder. I think Shudder has it exclusively right now. Yes. But it is a service you should check out. Anybody listening to this show would like Shudder. Check it out there and come back if you want. Or if you don't mind spoilers, then we're going to get into it here. I feel like we do have to go a little, a little bit more in detail just to kind of go into those layers that we were talking about. But just uh, the... Well, because it seems that a the root of the conflict, uh, these paranormal activities and the, the psychic abilities of some of the characters tie into something called uh, Kagutaba, which is, is this uh, entity that uh, supposedly uh, lives in a uh, village called uh, Shimokage. And it, this and this is heavy on the folk horror side, but like. According to their legend, the people of Shimokage uh, summon Kagutaba 
and imprisoned it for uh, disobeying them. And every year they would hold a ritual in order to bind the well Kagutaba to the village. And uh, they did this until the village was demolished in 1978 to make way for a dam and the last ritual went awry. And the, and the interesting part of it is, though, is that Kobayashi interviews a, a historian of the village who mentions in his research that Kagutaba is not a demon in the traditional sense. Like, they use the term demon, but it's not really a demon. It's something more, you know, and, and that's the thing that I feel like the most effective found footage horror movies utilize is that uh, the fear of the unknown or, you know, like giving us an ambiguity that lets us fill in the, in the blanks and never gives us an exact answer. And that goes even deeper into the core of what makes found footage horror effective because uh, the whole point of recording something is to, you know, document it and analyze it and have an explanation for it. You know, you film, you film something in order to better understand it. But if you film something and you don't understand what it is, then what do you have? You're right. It definitely feels like the more information we have, there's a little bit less that we understand at times. You know, I just kind of like it, it popped in my head here. I, I had said earlier that there were elements of Lovecraft in there in this oh, film. Yeah. And this isn't what I was thinking of specifically, but you just mentioned the in 1978, the village was demolished to me and they, they put a dam in and basically kind of flooded the whole area, mm. which I mean, it very much is color out of space, right? That's what happens there. And yes. Kind of, oh, I didn't even think about that. And kind of similar. But what I was thinking of in terms of Lovecraft, really, were the ectoplasmic worms that Hori, the deranged man that seems to have some psychic, right. very strong psychic abilities that he's trying to kind of tamp down. He keeps talking about ectoplasmic worms and that they're devouring everything. That kind of struck me as a little bit like like from beyond. Right, right, in the and pineal gland. Him in particular, the stuff that he was seeing, it, it just it, it gave me a, a very much a, a from beyond vibe. And even we could talk about like Kagataba as being something something otherworldly in a way that they be, could be considered Lovecraftian. But I mean, I I guess in a way that's kind of a an easy and lazy way to describe a lot of horror. But it, it I got a big vibe out of it this time. Oh yeah, no, well I mean it's something beyond human understanding and that's and you know that's the thing with lovecraft though is that uh, what makes it so scary is that you know he knew to tap into the fear of the unknown you know the fear of uh something beyond human knowledge and in, in this particular case even though kagutaba you know is named and apparently has some rules to it or something it's still something far beyond the spectrum of uh japanese pathology uh because they use religion and this uh, magic or whatever you want to call it to kind of bind it but it's much it's something much more than that uh like i said you know the historian emphasizes that it's not a demon in the traditional sense it's something worse but uh, you know, there's not there's not a lot to um, uh, draw uh, draw on it, except for you know the sort of surrounding elements like the ectoplasmic worms and the rituals. So it does kind of follow a, a similar aesthetic in that way. Yeah, and we never quite get 
specifics about what Kagetaba does or what his whole whole deal is, I guess. We, yeah. we do get, or even or even really what it looks like, except if, and I feel like that this was a pretty effective uh, thing that the uh, the Kagutaba mask that the priest and the priestess wear that which is just so disturbing, like the bloodied mask with the horn. Yeah, and it's it's its proportions are not like they're asymmetrical, which is always a little bit unnerving, but also they. Um, they're kind of they're not like really deformed it's just the proportions and it looks like they've been stretched in odd directions here and there and it's got these big blank circle eyes we do get kind of kind of a, a glimpse of it at the end uh um, oh, true true but it, it that's not even we're not even i'm assuming that's not even its real form it's just we we see the face on a, on a character right um, yeah so we we're not actually quite sure what it is but it's that that's one of the things i think is really powerful also about this movie and that that actually is is kind of a theme in some japanese horror in that the main characters do not understand that they get to a point where they think they understand and then we discover kind of at the end like oh no we were we were all completely wrong and we just really screwed up and made things worse It, it is interesting how that kind of plays about and again it's um what makes rewatching it so interesting because there's just all these different elements to pick up on. And, and also I do, I do like this particular plot just because it, it puts together such uh, an interesting cast of characters because Kobayashi is kind of the molder of the, of the team in a way in that he's a believer, but he's also methodical and he's a very, very much by the book as a documentarian and a paranormal researcher and then you got uh hori uh who <laughs> like you're saying is kind of a madman he's uh and it's interesting how we, how they kind of tie in uh the tinfoil hat because he actually does wear like a tinfoil hat and like he does all this stuff with tinfoil which you know is like the be all traditional conspiracy nut trait but it actually does have bearing on the story and outside of, you know, like it's usually kind of a sci-fi thing where it's like uh, aliens or mind control. But in this case, it's ectoplasmic worms. The ectoplasmic worms, I don't know how much uh, or well, I don't know exactly know what their bearing on this story is, because it seems to be an affliction he's been dealing with for years. Like you, they show in the side of his apartment a few times and really every surface is lined with foil and his clothes are all lined with foil and he sleeps in kind of a box that he's lined with foil. Yeah. The implication is that's, it's not just Kagutaba, although they, they do tie into Kagutaba. They seem to be like a different threat that he is seeing or perceiving at all times. And then we only get to see them for a, a second near the end. They come across the, um, the ritual and they, they seem to come across it towards the end of it. But there, there's a glimpse on the camera for a little while of the girl and she's like covered by these worm things. So that seems to have something to do with Kagutaba, but also is, is maybe they're just a, they're just a force that's always around us, but Hori is just able to perceive them at all times. Yeah, and also like the ghost fetuses. 
Yes. Yeah. That, that maybe that, that's kind of, maybe those are the same things. Maybe I was just conflating the two things. Maybe they're not actually, maybe those weren't the worms. Were those supposed to be the ghost fetuses? And I'm, um, well, I'm double checking on, uh, Wikipedia and <laughs> yeah, it looks like, uh, they, those were, uh, the fetuses. Oh, okay. Which were a part of the ritual or like some sort of sacrifice to Kagutop. Yeah. Cause they, you, you find out that like towards the end of it, that, they called forth Kagataba by feeding baby monkeys to to the vessel that they were going to put Kagataba into, and that the woman with the young boy had worked at a fertility clinic clinic and was basically was feeding him embryos. And yeah. uh, so so he she's calling forth Kagataba. See, that's the thing. Maybe maybe I just wasn't paying attention enough. But I, that's another thing. Like, is she? possessed by Kagutaba because we see that video footage they took film reel footage of the ritual one year and it seems to go badly and she it kind of the like yeah it was the final ritual and it's when it went awry before the town was flooded and so is it, the implication then that she's been living her life with Kagutaba in her and she is trying to pass it on to somebody else or is she calling him forth in in a different vessel I'm not not entirely sure on that and maybe like Maybe that isn't something that's explained, but it maybe it's also something I, I should watch it again to really understand. Yeah, well, I think a part of it might be interpretive. Like, uh, she definitely became corrupted or some or something affected her because the ritual w- went wrong with Kagutaba. But yeah, no, this, she, oh man, she was one of the scariest characters in the movie just because, like, she, did, she didn't even really speak, but just every scene she was in, she was just... She just had this look, this kind of glare at the characters in the camera. It was just so piercing and frightening. Yeah, and the few times that she did speak, it was always just to kind of like rush outside of a door and say, how dare you talk to me? Get out of here. Yeah, just, it, again, it's it's like all these different plot threads. If, if you don't pick them up, uh, pick up on them quickly, you know, when they come back later, it, it just gives you such a realization. Because like I like the first time I... I saw it, you know, I didn't even think that she was going to figure into the plot that way. So one other thing I, I think, like I said, this kind of stands apart from a lot of J-horror at the time. But I, I also think that this movie owes maybe not like a, a super heavy debt, but I think it is partially indebted to the Juon series. I think more than any other Japanese horror film at the time, I think Juon is the one that's closest to this. I don't know. Have you seen those films? Uh yeah well i saw the original and uh the remake uh you know the grudge yeah uh also it's funny you mentioned that because shira ishii actually would go on to direct sadako versus kayako the uh ring the ring versus the juon movie yeah yeah that's true i i forgot about that i know you you i've seen that one but um I, i keep forgetting he did that i i think that this owes a little bit of a debt to Juwon. It has kind of a the shifting perspectives, like the stories are told from multiple sources. It came out a couple of years after a few of the Juwon films. I mean, I've, I've seen all of them by now, but it, it, it has a couple of like elements, like particularly the actress appearing on a t- paranormal television show and being introduced to the, the curse that way is something that was in the Juwon series as well. But then also this new Netflix show uh, the Juon Origins, which I highly recommend. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I still got to see that. That Juon show 
I feel took a little bit from Noroi the Curse as well. It, it has, as the main character, a an author writing a series of books about paranormal activity and investigating this, you know, the Juon and the house that way. It, it also has like the live talk show that's not on TV. You remember that scene where where Hori meets? Uh, well, there it's the talk show in like the. It, it just looks like it's a conference room with uh, or a small stage. And it's just a live audience uh, where Marika and Kobayashi are on and then Hori comes out and attacks her. That setting, it's not the same scene, but that setting appears in Juon as well. And these could all just be, I mean, they're, they're just Japanese touchstones or things that are in Japanese culture that I'm saying like, oh, that's interesting that it's in these other movies, but it's actually just a, a really a part of their life all the time. But I do feel like there is there is kind of a, a give and take, like the series, this took a little bit from the series and then the series took a little bit from it. But I've seen all the Juwan films. Really, the, the first couple are fantastic. Uh, there's just some good parts in the middle uh, films and the later films are kind of awful. And then uh, the the Netflix show, really fantastic. Really rekindled my appreciation for the those films. Yeah, I got I got to check that out. It's been on my list. You don't need to know anything about the series. It the, it tells its own story. Gotcha. But yeah, no, it just uh, what from what you were saying, I, I wanted to add that in terms of being a found footage movie, uh, I think it really does a good job of kind of capturing the aesthetic of uh, paranormal t- uh, television or paranormal documentary stuff. Because uh, I feel I feel like particularly in the late '90s and early 2000s, you know there. Uh, there were just so many like in uh paranormal investigation tv shows you know before the internet really took off on it because like it, it was a pretty popular subject uh in terms of prime time i mean i mean just look at uh you know alien autopsy and all that stuff that was on fox it was even even rewatched that episode of uh, the simpsons the springfield files where homer sees a U- sees an alien and he crosses over the X Files, and because uh, in the '90s, like there was just such a huge zeitgeist for paranormal videos, and you know, and and I think that's you know part of it that uh, we're just so desperate to see some kind of proof on video of something beyond our understanding. You're right. That is, that that is kind of a style of show that is very popular. That one ghost hunting show that that show that Marika shows up on. That that is these two guys, these two really goofy guys <laughs> that tell like these terrible jokes all the time. I I just I I kind of actually do want to see that show, <laughs> but yeah, this this movie came out one year after like Ghost Hunters premiered on well whatever I don't know where it was to begin Sci-fi with Sci Fi Channel. I can't even say knowing like production schedules and how he would have seen things there in Japan. I can't even say that this is taking anything from Ghost Hunters, but it it does really capture the that kind of vibe, like that that kind of aesthetic of of what that type of show would be, with with you know de- mm-hmm. definitely a localized Japanese flavor as well. Well, yeah, definitely. Although I'm I'm pretty sure that uh, the, those types of shows were pretty popular in Japan around that time as well. But uh, again, you know, it's just such an interesting hodgepodge. Because, you know, like the first time I saw it, I was really thrown for a loop where uh, there's the uh, daytime TV show about psychic powers 
and like the girl uh, the little girl who supposedly has psychic powers and i think it, uh, like one of her abilities was uh uh, making liquid appear in an empty mason jar like it's just treated as like a stun and then you find out that she's been kidnapped and it just gets darker and kind of ties more into the story it's it's just it's very genuine is what i mean like the 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 different videos just feel like uh, the different types of segments you would see on those types of uh, shows at that time i've seen that type of uh show in movies before but I, I feel like if anybody was really, really demonstrating the abilities that that little girl was demonstrating on that TV show, it would have been bigger news. If not bigger news, I think more people would have at least been interested in her because, yeah, she just makes water appear and they test it and it's from a lake and they find a hair in it. They say it's a newborn, I think, because it, it's so undeveloped, maybe. I can't remember how. It oh did. yeah, I think it was from. I think it was saying it, like it could have been from a fetus, you know, to kind of tying it back together. It, it just seems like like she's showing up or she's displaying so many amazing feats that the the people are very blasé about it. Like th there's that panel of people watching it happen, and they're just like, "Oh, oh, look, she made water." <laughs> like I, I feel like it would have been a bigger deal. Yeah, probably. Although, well, I guess it's also just you know, it's a daytime paranormal show so even if something actually weird happened like nobody's going to really take it seriously that's true that's true so there, there's one interesting little thing i wanted to point out in this uh, that mm -hmm. uh, that struck out to me this time was that so kobayashi never puts the camera down in this movie that's kind of a complaint you hear about found footage a lot is why don't people ever put the camera down like why would they stay here <laughs> and film all this but for most of this movie Kobayashi has a good excuse. He's he's filming a documentary and there's not a whole lot that's actually scary happening to him. He's kind of being told stories and he gets the footage from elsewhere until kind of the the end. So at the end, he has adopted the the boy that's with Ishii, the woman. Yeah. Which I thought was a very bizarre development as well. Like, yes. That, that, uh, yeah, I was I had to I had to add, yeah, that that was pretty weird. Just uh, both in, in a professional sense that as an investigator, why would he adopt uh, the kid at the center of the case? And yeah, just like, how, how did that work out? I mean, he, I mean, he just found the kid. Like, it's just, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was a bit of an odd plot point. So at the end, the kid's living with him and Hori comes and like he not only comes over, he broke out of a mental hospital. Oh yeah, he breaks out of a mental hospital, and he goes. He he arrives, and he's going to kill the kid because he knows the kid is Kagutaba, and he he starts to bludgeon the kid, but then he seems to be controlled because you see Kagutaba's face on the kid, but yeah. it, it also looks like maybe that's just how his face looks after he's been hit, but then it it goes back to kind of a more normal looking face. And then Hori seems to be under the control of Kagetaba because he kills or he hits Kobayashi and then starts to it and kills his wife. Or how is that? I can't remember. I just watched. Yeah, he actually. I think Hori just leaves with uh, Kagetaba, and yeah, Keiko. Oh yeah, his wife uh, Kobayashi's wife Keiko pours gas over herself, then sets herself on fire, and they find her body. But Kobayashi is never found. He goes missing. Kobayashi has been a little bit incapacitated. He's been hit in the head. And you, you, 
you can see that he's struggling to get up. He doesn't have all uh, like full motor control at the time. As his wife is doing this, he starts to crawl towards her and then he stops and goes back to get the camera and picks it up and like takes it and leaves the house with it. So he he's never putting the camera down. He's also been filming this entire time up until the point where he gets hit in the head and there's an attack going on in his house, which I only bring up because his wife, when faced with not not a similar situation, but um, Marika is staying with his wife because she's been having some hauntings at her apartment or not, doesn't doesn't feel comfortable. She didn't sleep walking. Right, right. Um, so they're staying there and there's a scene where they're eating to together. They're having lunch and Marika makes this this weird noise and falls over like she's having a fit. And Keiko, Kobayashi's wife, does like immediately drop the camera to go help her. So I just thought that the only reason that it it's really it really stuck out to me that Kobayashi never put the camera down is because the only other person that's really ca carrying a camera for any, any any important incident does put the camera down to go and help somebody immediately. Yeah, and also I kind of remember something like at the beginning Kobayashi, you know, is introducing himself and he talks about being a professional and also being obsessed with uh, trying to find the truth, no matter how horrible it may be. Mm. So if, maybe that just maybe maybe that just kind of ties into his character. Like he's just very not obsessed, but uh, determined in his uh, role as a documentarian and especially as a documentarian trying to find proof of the supernatural. Yeah, that's a good point. But I just feel also that he, <laughs> I mean, I get it. He's incapacitated, but it, it does seem like it's also calling out a little bit of his, his own selfishness that he, he goes back to save the camera, but not, not his wife, although his wife's on fire at the time. Yeah. It also just might've been desperation. Like uh, he, he realized Kagutaba was real and was trying and was trying to kill him and his wife. So Maybe he figured uh, the only thing he could do at that point was try and save the footage to try and warn the populace. Yeah, because I like what is Kagataba going to do? Well, Hori ends up dead, so the kid is out there as Kagataba, and I guess we just don't don't really know. I guess he could just be spreading, you know, evil and sickness throughout the world. Mm. Um, do you uh, do you have anything else you wanted to say about Noroi? I guess to emphasize that. It's probably one of the scariest found footage movies I've ever seen. Uh, yeah, I would I would agree with that. So the director, Koji Shiraishi, he's done quite a few other horror films, and he seems to very much love the found footage style. I, I think he's, uh, other than this, he's done at least five found footage films. Well, mm. he's done four more at least found footage horror films and one found footage erotica film, which... Okay, <laughs> wow. And, when I saw he had directed an erotica film with found footage, my immediate thought was that is both an incredibly obvious idea and genius. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not looking, I'm not looking. So maybe there are a ton of erotica found footage film, but like talk about form and content. And it's like a perfect marriage. They, they found footage and erotica. They just seem like they would go together. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I never really thought of it that way, but yeah, that's that's definitely inventive. I'll give him that. I went and I did. I didn't watch that film. I did go back and watch uh, two other films by Koji Shiraishi. I watched *A Cult* from two thousand nine and *Cult* mm. from two thousand eight. 
from 2013 and they're not related at all mm. they're not not as good as this this is i mean he's i'm gonna i, I want to check out his other films because they are they are fun and in particular a cult really amused me because Kiyoshi Kurosawa appears as himself. He's a Japanese director. He directed Cure and Pulse, mm. uh, Doppelganger. Uh, he's directed some really good, really great horror movies. And he appears as himself, as both a horror movie director and an expert on like pre-Christian Lovecraftian runes. And <laughs> he's like... He's somebody that that uh, Koji, who also plays himself, goes to consult for expertise on on these images that he finds. And that really amused me. And I think that was probably my favorite part of the movie. But he also is a director that even though nothing I've seen comes close to Neroy, I, I just see him in his work and in interviews. He's a he's probably the Japanese horror director I know of that is having the most fun doing what he's doing. Like he seems to, <laughs> he seems to really enjoy making these movies and every picture I see of him, he's doing this, like he's doing a funny pose and he's got this like screaming happy face. Like he just looks like he's having a ball. And I, I have to respect that. Well, yeah. I mean, you got, you got to have that kind of uh, joy to be doing this sort of thing. But yeah, if you haven't seen Sadako versus Kayako, and it sounds like you're a pretty big fan of uh, Kayako, definitely recommend Sadako versus Kayako. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've seen it. But now that I have seen more of, of his work, and I kind of have a, a different understanding of his style and, oh. and his humor, I want to watch it again. Because I'm, all I remember at the time... I've only seen the first Ring film. I haven't seen any of the sequels, but I've seen all of the Juon films. And so when I watched Sadako versus Kayako, I just kind of remember it, it didn't it didn't fit into what I expected. I, I mean, I didn't know what I expected putting those two together. Although I did, I did enjoy the like the detective character. I thought he was really funny, fun little character. But now that I kind of, I, I, I think I was maybe expecting something a little either more jokey or less jokey than the movie became. But now that I know his style, I really want to go back and, and maybe I'll have a different appreciation for it. Yeah, I should probably give it another rewatch soon. Although I really enjoyed it when it first came out. I liked the uh, advertising campaign. Did you see that video of, uh, of them throwing out the first pitch at a baseball game? Oh, yes. Yes, that was amazing. It's funny you mentioned that because it kind of reminded me of uh, when they were doing all those promos for Freddy versus Jason. Like, remember when they had a weigh-in in Las Vegas between Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know, we got we got our similarities. Yeah, and I, this movie is kind of going for that, but I, I think both of the characters are a little bit a little bit too passive. Like, you don't get the fun of seeing Freddy and Jason mm. just beat the hell out of each other. That is true. It's a very different sort of setup. And yeah, so uh, last words on Nora the Curse. Just, yeah, I, I feel like it's one of the most effective found footage horror movies I've seen just because, you know, it just feels so real while being so supernaturally terrifying. And it's just really effective.
I feel like something bad is going to happen to me. It hasn't reached me yet, but it's on its way. The normally tranquil setting of Ararat Mountains and Mirrorian volunteers joining a Ten days after Ali's funeral, stuff started happening around the house. Sounds seemed to come from Ali's old room. They didn't really relent, so I thought, well, I'll just set up a camera to, you know, see anything. I looked back and there was footage of a figure moving across the hallway. The image was quite unsettling because it certainly looked like Alice. I want you to close your eyes. I usually uh, videotape my sessions. Something was happening inside that house and I wanted to find out what it was. We checked the tapes. There was a ghost in our house. Alice kept secrets. She kept the fact she kept secrets a secret. Something bad is going to happen to me. It hasn't reached me yet, but it's on its way. And it's getting closer. Lake Mungo is a 2008 Australian horror film about the Palmer family who are dealing with the recent drowning death of their eldest daughter, Alice. When Alice begins showing up in the background of photos taken at places she used to frequent, the family tries to get to the bottom of the haunting. And that is the setup for Lake Mungo, my pick for found footage this week. I saw this, I, I, I saw this in, when it came out. I didn't see it theatrically. It was part of that After Dark Horror Fest that they used to do for a couple of years. Every Halloween, they'd put out eight movies. Oh, yeah. And you could you could buy a ticket to like the all-day festival or just buy the DVDs. And I bought this, uh, or not I bought this, I rented this as soon as it came out on video. And this movie, like you, you just called Noroi one of the most effective or the most effective found footage movie you've ever seen. And this might actually be my pick for most effective not scariest this movie is not very scary we should get that out of the way i think it is creepy as hell but it, it is not a movie that is trying to trying to scare you the way that noroi is but as a found footage film it, i found it incredibly affecting i i feel like i almost started crying the first time i watched it I, I watched it at two in the morning by myself everybody in the house was asleep and i was just like laying on the living room floor watching this movie wow and I was totally unprepared. I, I got sucked in by the movie, and then I was unprepared for where the movie goes by the end. But how about you? When did you see this movie? Well, uh, I think it must have been maybe a year or two ago. The uh, Shockwaves podcast uh, had mentioned it. Like I, I'm pretty sure it's a favorite of Rebecca McKendry's. Uh, she brought it up a few times. And it's pretty regularly available, like, it's been on Prime Video for a long time. So I think I just kind of watched it through there. Although, admittedly, the first time I saw it, didn't really care for it as much. Didn't think it, it really made an impact on me. But uh, seeing it a couple times since, it has grown on me. And I can't appreciate just, you know, how well put together it is. I should say that this this is not truly found footage. It It isn't you know, the Blair Witch Project or Paranormal Activity. It isn't even like like Noroi, where it's kind of produced as a documentary 
and then at a certain point, you know, somebody came in to finish it and release it. It's not even like that. This is made as if it is a real documentary. And my belief has been since 2008 that if you were to kind of just channel surf and find this on PBS, if they played this on PBS one night with no context, <laughs> I, I believe it would it would have fooled me. I think it would fool anybody. It's to a T, it just looks like a real documentary. I think maybe to the film's detriment, I don't I don't think it's to the film's detriment, but I think to reach a to reaching a wider audience, it's a little too sedate. It is not outwardly scary enough to kind of hook the audience that that it went for. Like I think it was a real mistake to make this one of the after dark horror films. It, it's not only the best movie I've seen out of that that fest. I haven't seen them all. There could be hidden gems in there, but it its quality is a, at a level and its style is at a level that you would not be expecting if you were getting a you know a pass to eight kind of like. Well, I, I mean, I don't want to disparage any of them. Some of them are fun, but they're they're all they're kind of, you know, sci fi channel level horror at times where they, they're a little bit more in your face than this movie is. So I I feel like the marketing didn't help it in that regard. Yeah. And now that you mention it, like I, I remember those uh, after dark horror movies using usually being more uh, visceral. And uh, if there's one key word to like Mungo it's subtle yes it is an extremely subtle movie that, that all started i was saying that i don't think lake mungo is true found footage and i usually see it listed people talk about like the the 10 best found footage film or the the mm. best found footage films you've never heard of and i see lake mungo and i want to say no it's not really found footage it is a fake documentary it's a mockumentary and yet i'm choosing it for this one because it shares that documentary aspect and i think the familial angle that Neroy has and I, I thought it would be a good fit for that for those two aspects true although I, I do think they both still count as found footage because both have uh, pivotal plot points revolving around and the use of found footage that's true there is found footage in this that is found by the family but i i just i think maybe my my quibble with it is like nobody found this footage. They went out and made this footage, except for that, you know, those couple of instances in it. Yeah, fair enough. You know, the fictional reality of the film. Right, right. I used to recommend this a lot at, at Blockbuster when I worked there, and at least half of the people would return it saying it was just it was boring, not scary. They yeah. it I went and looked up some contemporaneous reviews and even even some more current reviews. It it seems like a lot of the people that didn't like the movie stopped paying attention or turned the movie off after that like mid-movie twist where Alice's brother is found out to have been faking the ghost sightings by doctoring the footage and you know he has that they they set up cameras to capture things at night and he has this complicated setup where he basically projects footage of or plays footage on a TV of Alice and has a mirror reflecting it so that in the mirror and the footage, it just looks like Alice is there. It seems like a lot of work for him to go through, but that's revealed, I think around the halfway point. Yeah. Think, or, think, or about a third. Yeah. And I think people kind of stop paying too much attention because they're like, Oh, well, this is, this isn't even a horror movie. They're just faking everything, but Scooby-Doo, but there are still things to discover in this movie. And I, I think, I don't know it just all really works for me like i i even this second time or 
this is only the second time I watched it. I don't know why I've never rewatched it since it came out because it, it just immediately kind of sucked me in and I was like watching it. I was engaged at all times. Yeah, no, I, I feel like it's kind of what makes Noroi effective as well. Like I was talking about that, just the uh, Lake Mungo has so many layers to it or, you know, there, there's such a depth to it that one viewing just isn't enough. Yeah, and there's... I mean, there's a, a lot of developments, as, as you probably gathered from me saying I'm wearing a Twin Peaks shirt. Um, <laughs> I'm a big David Lynch man, and I do not like it when people call something Lynchian or compare things to Twin Peaks most of the time, because I think at the times that they're doing that, they're not quite getting what makes David Lynch or Twin Peaks unique. They're kind of just saying like, oh, it's weird. So it's like that. <laughs> or there's a there's a dead girl. So it's like Twin Peaks. But in this one, I think it fits or Twin Peaks or Blue Velvet where you kind of have an image of this family and the more you look at them, the longer you or, or deeper you look at them, the more secrets come out of some of them, particularly Alice. You find out she's been keeping secrets and some of them turn out to be like Laura Palmer, quite seedy and, and, uh, and maybe a little perverse. Right. Well, I, I think it also kind of ties into the sort of thing David Lynch uses as a recurring theme in his works, and that uh, even the most idyllic places have a dark underbelly, because uh, it, this movie is set in, like, an inc- well, not just a small town, but an incredibly small town, uh, Ar- Ararat, Australia, which um, it's got a population of 8,300 people. So we're talking small town. Yeah, very small. Yeah, but even even so, and it goes into um, a few of the characters that everybody's got a secret. Yeah, and I think, like, well, the big one that we can get to with Alice is, so they find out that Matthew's been faking all of the ghost sightings, but later they find that on one of the tapes, one of the cameras that he's been recording uh overnight on there is somebody else there uh, that was unseen to begin with and it's their next door neighbor brett and they find that he was like they go and they look in her room to see what he was doing there and they find that he was looking for this vhs tape that she had and when they look at it it's her like having sex with brett and brett's wife and that she used to babysit for them and she's she's a minor i'm not sure what's considered a minor in australia but i think the implication is she's or do they say she's 16 17 so she's younger than that uh yeah six, 16 so she's younger 16. than that probably in the tape or if not younger Ooh. like maybe maybe even just a couple months younger but still like it, it's still illegal because they talk about uh well maybe not illegal because they talk about how the cops like brett and his wife just leave they move away and are in hiding and the cops say that even if they did get them they might not they might not be able to arrest them or put them in jail because they could argue that in the evidence of the tape that it was consensual so he is an adult she is a young teenager it is gross yeah if not like i said dark underbelly yeah it, it, it is if not to the letter of the law illegal it is definitely immoral so that's one of her secrets i, I think that's the big one I don't, I don't think there's anything else they find out that's like incredibly shocking about her 
Although then, you know, it's kind of like Norroy in that it leads to a chain of found footage or a chain of footage in that um, that leads them to another piece of the puzzle. Yeah, because then they get the... Um... Well, wait, does it? Because Like the, the uh, class trip footage to Lake Mungo. Isn't that brought to them by the boyfriend? Or um, her friend comes th- to it? Yeah, yeah, I think it was the boyfriend. There's a camp trip out to Lake Mungo because she drowns, but it's not at Lake Mungo. Lake Mungo is a dried lake bed that uh, her high school class went out to a trip on. Mm-hmm. And there's cell phone footage. Oh, so primitive 2008 cell phone footage <laughs> that is as big as a brick. Yeah, that is impossible to make out. But you see her burying something underneath a tree at Lake Mungo. So the family goes there to you know find out what she's buried and there's there's a couple of things she's she left didn't she put a bracelet in there yeah like a like her favorite bracelet and a watch not not a watch i mean her phone she came back saying that she'd lost her phone and they find her phone and plug it in to look at it and there's um i i think the the only thing in the movie that's meant to scare you and it did like i said i watched this at two in the morning all by myself that this moment did legitimately scare me not in a jump sense but in a like my blood ran cold when i realized what i was seeing because they watch the footage and she's walking around by herself at night and it's completely dark and you see a figure coming and she's walking towards it and as you get closer you realize it is her but it is her the way that she looked after she came out of the water she's like bloated and misshapen a bit and looks very very eerie especially in that like really really awful looking 2008 cell phone footage yeah no that that was definitely the highlight of the movie and (laughs) i'd have to say it's a scene that definitely won over a lot of fans just because it is it is a very effective scare because so much before that is just build up or you know building up the tension and yeah, just something about it is so effective, especially because like you do see the corpse a few times throughout the movie before that, especially at the beginning when they talk about finding her body at the dam and just realize that we got two found footage movies with dams as plot points. Oh, yeah. Something about dams. They're haunted places, I guess. Uh, but yeah, no, the scene in question is undoubtedly effective i think just because like you were saying you know just a lot of the movie is not meant to be scary and i mean there is some tension here and there but this is like the uh the breaking point this is like the push yeah and i think what really struck me is there's not a lot of horror movies where the scare the big scare moment or any big scare moment is so emotional like the realization of what she is seeing and the fact that she knows that it's a, an image of her, like we get, we get talked about the weeks leading up to her actually drowning. She was having dreams because we, so they hire a psychic and we yeah. find out later that he's been keeping from them that the daughter came to get interpretation of her dreams. And she's been dreaming about drowning and also, you know, kind of being in her house and people can't see her. And so by the time she sees herself at Lake Mungo, like the implication is she knows what that is. She knows she's about to die. She's had an image of her death. And there's another revelation or two that happens after that. But that scare came so loaded with emotion for me 
that maybe I was just being very emotional at the time I saw this, uh, that, that it just made me terrified of the implications of it. And while also incredibly heartbroken for this character. Yeah, no, it's uh, what, uh, again, what, uh, what makes it so effective is, is that it's able to pack in such emotions along with uh, the fear and that's the thing to it. It isn't just like, oh, a ghost is going to pop up and scare you. It's like it has some very existential and uh, emotional levels to it. Like uh, when she's talking to the psychic, one, one of the things that really stood out to me is that she gets existential about, you know, like being afraid of death and, you know, talking about the inevit- inevitability of death. Because it's it all ties into some of the deeper uh, themes of the movie, which which I think amount to uh, you know grief and loss and all these other heavy emotions. Yeah, because I, I I said there was revelations to come, and what we hear at the end, because we that we're we're seeing clips of the psychic tapes all of his um, his sessions, and we're seeing this footage of Alice meeting up with him. And she says to him, one of the dreams, or does he runs her through like a hypnosis, I don't know, program isn't the right word, but he runs her through yeah. it to, to like go through the house and visualize the house. And she goes in there and basically she's in her room and she sees her mom, but her mom doesn't see her. And her mom turns and leaves and Alice is alone and knows she's alone. That is like the end of the movie because the end of the movie the family figures that they figured out the secret Alice was hiding, that they've been able to put her to rest. The haunting is over. And so they leave, they move because they can't live in the same house. And we get over the end credits, all of these shots from previous in the film, even some of the doctored photos that had Alice, but there's actually Alice is elsewhere hidden in the frame. So she's actually been there the whole time. They just haven't been able to see her. And she has this vision where like she's there alone and can't communicate with them. And that is mirrored in the end of the movie when the mom goes through to Alice's room just before they leave. And like, it, it just, it was so heartbreaking to me. Like it was not at all what I was expecting from this movie in this frankly, very silly series of horror movies, this after dark horror fest. True. And uh, and yeah, you know, there, there's a, lo- a lot of rewatch value in that because, uh, you know, like the second, like the second or third time I'd seen it, you know, I just was having my eyes glued to the screen to see, oh, maybe I can spot her this time and in like this scene or that scene. Yeah. And, and it's just, um, you know, because these found footage movies are also almost like puzzles. You know, you got to try and find all the pieces definitely that yes I, you hit it right on the head there yeah and i mean that with yeah with lake mungo it's it it, it is subdued but i feel i feel like that that's actually its strength I, like you mentioned it kind of turned off uh some people and i think it was just kind of a matter of expectation but you know the, this is uh you know, particularly for a supernatural found footage horror movie, uh, grounded um, because I've because yeah, the majority 
of the movie just deals with the family and the emotional toll on them. But yeah, the supernatural elements only add to it. Like the whole reason that um, uh, Matthew does, uh, you know, the hoax is that he wants to push the family to exhume and then re-examine the body just to make sure that it's actually Alice because he, I think he said he wanted to do it because his mother was so distraught because they couldn't completely identify her. So it was, it was really about finding closure. Yeah. It, this is a horror movie where kind of death is the source of terror. It is the terror of mortality. So it, yeah. it's not, it, it, it maybe could be scarier. I'm not sure how it would be scarier. And I don't know if I want it to be scarier, but it, it could be, more like frightening in some way they could have he, he probably could have made it scarier and it would have been a fine movie it may have even made more popular although this was very well received like the critical reception was pretty good for this movie but it is it is kind of just about fear of mortality like there's a line i i kind of i singled out here that the mom says at one point during an interview on the documentary where she says that that death takes everything eventually it's the meanest dumbest machine there is and it just keeps coming which is yeah just like the yeah the the statement of the movie right yeah no that's that's the thesis and and again it's interesting that uh you know our picks you know are so scary because they go to a deeper level just beyond you know like jump scares or monsters like noroid uh deals with and asks about you know what uh you know what lies beyond the normal realm or you know the or or like what the supernatural really is while like mungo just kind of deals with mortality and what what happens after death and how do you contend with death because again it's there's no simple explanations there's no summation it's like why did alice see herself or you know this grisly doppelganger at lake mungo there's there's no reason you know there's no curse no no like uh, relic uh, no burial ground it's it just happened to her and she just had to deal with the consequences oh man i i i i love this movie i'm i'm i feel like i'm i'm gushing a little bit maybe maybe, <laughs> maybe it doesn't quite deserve what i'm giving it but i just like it was such a surprise when I saw it, and I was so pleased on the second viewing to see that it it still held up for me. Well, hey, I, I got to ask, uh, did you see the Nazi in this movie? The Nazi? Yeah, there is a Nazi in one of the bits of footage, like an actual uniformed Nazi soldier. And uh, oh shit. I am going to send you the picture right now. Uh, I'm sending it to you through Zoom if you want to oh, if you okay. want to take a look at it. It I rewound it 3 times, but in motion I could not I think it sent to you. In motion I could not be sure if I was seeing what I thought I was seeing. Yeah, what the fuck? And it, it's at a it's at um Alice's birthday party and the camera goes by it and you see it for less than a second because there's a character standing in front of the person at all times, but it's a guy or woman just standing there straight in a Nazi uniform. Yeah. Wow. That, that, that flew by me. I, whoa. Do you, are you seeing it? I'm seeing it. 
just yeah what the fuck is that so i have i have an explanation it's a little bit disappointing because I, I, I went and I searched it. And all I could find, I found a bunch of Reddit posts, like basically one a year for a couple of years, is somebody asking, hey, had, what's up with the Nazi in Lake Mungo? And <laughs> so at first I was like, okay, at least I'm not the only one. And then I found in one of the comments that on Twitter, somebody had asked the DP, said to them, uh, hey, what's up with the Nazi? Was that intentional? What is it a Nazi? And the DP said that, yeah, it is. It, I, I have his quotes here, but um, his first response to it was, it was a choice. There's always someone inappropriately dressed as a Nazi at a party, which, uh, okay. And then he clarifies it later, saying the Nazi was a random misdirect that Joel added into the mix. He wasn't planted or edited. It really was meant to be a party where someone came dressed as a Nazi. Oof. Which... Maybe, I mean, in 2008, that's not going to have the weight that it has right now. But I mean, it's still pretty bad. It's pretty bad. And I, I have to imagine, like, is that a thing? Do people just come dressed as Nazis? I guess, uh, what is it? Prince Prince Henry did it. So I guess maybe in, like, England or in Australia, it's a little bit different. But uh, that, that, that explanation was just a little bit disappointing to me. And... Uh, for listeners, I'll I'll go ahead and put that screen grab up on the Twitter and you know <laughs> oh, Facebook gosh. and everything. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't even really work as as a misdirect. I feel because I mean, for one thing, it was like like barely noticeable. It's like it's maybe a second tops, and yeah, it just, it just I don't really see how that how that would have figured into the plot. That's what I'm I'm thinking. There's something weird. I think maybe he just wanted it as like maybe it was just kind of a weird joke on his part because it definitely stuck out to me. I, I did rewind it several times to try and like get a good, a good freeze frame on it to see if that's really what it was. It, it was immediately apparent to me, I was, but I, I'm just not really sure why he decided to do it. Uh, um, shock value, maybe? Meh, maybe. This is the only feature film from writer-director Joel Anderson. Oh. Previous to this, he had done one short film. And after this, all he's done is he wrote a short film in 2013. I'm kind of curious about that only because I I imagine this movie wasn't a huge success. I I never look up, uh, you know, box office on these things. Right. But I'm imagining that it it got a little bit of a, um, a boost from being part of After Dark. But I don't think that probably would have been a huge influx of cash. But. It's so well received by critics. It's on all these lists. Whenever I, I look up like, well, for our top five later, I looked up on lists like, oh, let me just remind myself of some found footage movies. And every list of like underseen horror films or best found footage films, Lake Mungo is there. So people loved it. I'm not sure why he was never able to get another film made. Yeah, no, that that is odd. I would have expected, I would have expected him to keep going because... It it does seem it did get at least critical acclaim. Again, not sure on uh, the uh, box office front, but you know it it just it's too bad because uh, this was such this was such an effective found footage horror movie. I can only imagine what he what he would have done next. I just looked up the budget and uh, the budget and gross of this movie, and I'm not sure what worldwide it got, but in mm. Australia. 
it the budget was one point seven million dollars. And whoa. Well, wait, are you thinking that's low or high? <laughs> I think that's oh well, yeah, I guess in Australian money, so I guess probably not as much as I was thinking. Well, oh, this is even worse. Okay, so Australian one point seven million dollars box office in Australia. Twenty nine thousand eight hundred and fifty. Ooh, that's then, that's rough. So it doesn't and there's not even a listing for domestic. I mean, it must have made some money. It was in theaters here, not a not a mm. ton, but it was. That that may explain why another film wasn't made. There were interviews where he was talking about he did this film instead of the film he had initially wanted to do because he was having trouble finding funding. So he he did something a bit cheaper. Mm. One other thing he said, he said in an interview that he wrote no dialogue in his script, that he gave his actors motivations, and then he was the interview interviewer behind the camera and just asked them questions and let them, mm. like, improv their answers, which... Well, I guess that makes sense. I, I will say, like, I, watching it the second time, I kind of... You can pick out, like, fake acting. Like, people on news reports in movies never look like they're on the real news like it's so obviously faked and written for them <laughs> that i was watching it this time thinking like okay i want to see like are these people i just had an eye towards are they acting realistic and i thought they they were i thought maybe one or two moments it felt a little insincere but for the most part everybody just did feel like they were part of the same family they felt like they were really who they were that it like that's what i was part of what made it so effective to me as a documentary or a fake documentary is that it really did feel like like i said you could just watch this without context and think it was real yeah no like the uh the news reports at the beginning and and the setup uh did feel very authentic so they, they did a good job with that uh, although you know it is kind of funny with uh like mungo and noroi like i feel like there are some parallels like they both have some pretty effective uh, final scenes. You know, that final scene where you do see Kagutaba's face and also the final note about the footage being found mysteriously. Yeah. Did you watch through the credits on this one? Uh, I did not. After the credits, it's not even really a, a full scene, but there's just a, a couple of seconds of what looks like Alice standing outside at Lake Mungo and lightning like it crashes crashes lightning strikes behind her a couple of times so you only ever see her in shadow i, I mean it's not even like a scene to, per se but it's just a, something interesting they threw at the end of the credits yeah i wonder maybe that was like an outtake that they thought was pretty creepy like maybe there was lightning while they were shooting it's completely possible it's it, it seems to be like a different film stock than the rest of the movie too it's a lot crisper and the colors uh -huh. are a lot sharper than the rest of the movie so i'm not sure i'm not sure what they would have used it for if they or if they just kind of went back afterwards and thought like oh this will be a cool image or something like that interesting okay so that's our discussion of that we'll just take a quick break we'll come back we'll have our top fives of the week All right, and we're back, and we're going to go with our top five found footage movies. And like I always say, these are not necessarily our all-time favorites. These are just five that 
we want to talk about or we want to highlight or uh, just maybe say something quick about. And as is often the case with me, these are maybe just the top five that came to my head. <laughs> uh, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time making like lists of top anything because it always changes every day. Uh, oh, yeah. And just there, there is just such a wide variety to choose from. Yeah, especially for this. This is like a, a, a very prolific or very active subgenre. Like it took a slow start. You know, you think of what 70 something for Cannibal Holocaust and the next one, they didn't start making them again until like the 90s. And then even then it was another few years before it kind of caught on. And then it's just like exploded over the past 15 years. Yeah, well, as Blair Witch Project made so much money on such a small budget. It did, but then we didn't we didn't get a lot of imitators of it. I you would have expected more imitators. And how many years was it before we got paranormal activity? Uh, like it must have been te like ten years later. Yeah. So, I mean, it it eventually became very influential, but I just think the the mainstream didn't catch up with it first. Oh, actually, eight years later, that that okay. was two thousand seven. Okay. Uh, so yeah. Anyway, my number one is going to be. I mean, I'm 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 thinking there might be some crossover on our list. I don't know, but I I kind of went a little obvious on some of my choices. But this one, Cloverfield. I'm going to just go with Cloverfield. Mm -hmm. I really love this movie. It is basically like people call things a thrill ride, but this movie feels like a filmed version of a theme park ride. Especially when they go up there, they're in that skyscraper rescuing the guy's girlfriend. It's just the way oh, yeah. the camera goes from like set piece to set piece. It feels like you're just on a ride the entire time. And I just find it really entertaining. I, I, I do dig this movie a lot. Yeah, no, I mean, I remember seeing it in theaters and <laughs> I mean, there were the warnings, you know, for motion sickness, but uh, overall it was a pretty fun time. Yeah. I, I saw this three times in the theater with my, my partner the weirdest audience reactions out of this we were at a, a packed screening it must have been opening weekend mm. and there was a guy and his girlfriend in front of us and they were both reacting to the movie like they were really into it they were really like like screaming at all the right points laughing the guy was like going whoa and then the credits roll and he stands up and we're, we always wait through the credits and he stands up and as he's walking past us i just hear him saying to his girlfriend like god that really sucked <laughs> and I was like, what are, what are you talking about? Oh, what could have happened in that final scene that made you change your mind? You were so into the rest of the movie. <laughs> uh, you just don't know some people, I guess. Yeah, well, in this case, I did not know this person. Uh, so what do, you, <laughs> what do you got on yours? Well, I'm going to go a little deep dive, and this is something I only really discovered this year. Uh, the McPherson tape. Are you familiar? I was going to say yes, but then I, I realized I think I'm thinking of the Poughkeepsie tapes. Uh, yeah, no, that that's pretty different. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, this was actually dug up fairly recently by uh, the uh, mix of the American Genre Film Archive and Bleeding Skull. Basically, it's like a, kind of a pre-Blair Witch found footage movie from, uh, I think, about uh, 1989. Oh, you know, uh, I did hear about this. You Go, go ahead, because I don't know too much about it. Yeah, so it's basically about this family that's having a birthday at this cottage in the woods, and they hear a crash, and it turns out like this alien ship landed. And 
uh, there's one family member who just got a uh, video camera to record the birthday, just decides to record everything. And yeah, it's like these this family under siege in, in the woods by these aliens. And yeah, I mean, it's ridiculously low budget, but uh, it, it is pretty effective. And the funny thing is, is that for the longest time, it was supposedly authentic uh, alien abduction or like alien sighting footage. So it was like very popular in the conspiracy scene in the 90s for a long time. But yeah, it just got re-released and, you know, I'm surprised it is, it is still pretty effective, still holds up. I'm going to have to look where... I, I just Googled it to see if it's available anywhere and I don't see it. So uh, I will have to track it down. I might have to buy a copy of that. Yeah, it's available for Vinegar Syndrome uh, on Blu-ray. My next pick, I'm going to go with, uh, well, I'm just, I don't know why I'm leading up to it. Uh, my next pick is Hell House LLC. Uh, the first one, at least. Oh, nice. I right. watched all three of them a couple of months ago, kind of, kind of early into lockdown. And the first one really blew me away. I don't know what I was expecting. I think I was expecting something like um, uh, Houses That October Built. Did you ever see that? Uh, no, I missed that one. Okay. I, I didn't like it. It's about a bunch of people going to, to various haunted attractions, like the, right. the Halloween haunts, like Halloween Horror Nights or something. And I didn't like that. And I was expecting something like that. And this movie is much more effective. I... I think it had scares in the first Hell House that I found more like scary in the moment. But I'm a, I'm a coward. I'm a weakling <laughs> than a lot of other horror films. They're like it really got the sweet spot of just like I love the stuff where the camera moves away and inanimate objects move. And I, I love it even better when the characters don't notice it. But you're a viewer and you're like, but wait a minute, that mannequin's in the wrong position. Like, oh, yes. That, oh, that mannequin. Woof. That shit, like, is, I love it. That that stuff is just, like, immediately gives me a, a thrill. And Hell House, the first one, has a ton of that. There's a couple of good moments in the second one, and the third one is garbage. Most of the second one I didn't mm -hmm. like either, but the, it, it at least had a few moments. I see. Um, all right, for my next pick, I'm going to go with Apollo 18. Have yeah. you seen that one? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I feel like, it's is very underrated for its time and even today. Uh, so yeah, it's basically about a uh, lost uh, um, man mission to the moon because you know, like the last uh, actual mission to the moon was Apollo seventeen, and this is purported footage from an eighteenth Apollo mission that was never revealed for various reasons, and. I don't want to spoil too much, but yeah, so it's like these two astronauts on the moon and uh, like it just there's this one particular scene where they find a dead cosmonaut on the moon buried in a crater and it just something about that just really haunted me and it, it does a pretty good job with the found footage because, you know, like the Apollo missions were documented, so they do try to kind of recreate that and the twists about like what the what the danger what weirdness is happening on the on the moon is just it's wild well yeah to to your point about like the hauntingness of the dead cosmonaut there is something very just very in, in, inherently haunting 
about the idea of somebody dying in space. Like, yeah, that I remember that that horrible movie, horrible Brian De Palma movie. I I should stop like really ragging on movies. I don't like to do it normally. Mission to Mars. (laughs) Mission to Mars. I really disliked, but it had a great moment where he, he. I can't remember who's the person who did it. Gary Sinise, I think, is the guy who dies in space, where it it really struck me like, oh man, to just be floating out there. But um, but yeah, back to Apollo 18. I you're right, it got ravaged by critics and audiences. They're like the the scores on that are terrible. But I remember like renting it when it came out and thinking it was it was okay, it was better than its reputation. Um, yeah, like I feel like it had a pretty good marketing campaign. I was still pretty into uh, found footage at the time, but that might have been j- just around when uh, people were kind of getting sick of it. But yeah, just yeah, the the marketing campaign with the footage of the dead cosmonaut like that just was so haunting for some for some reason, and that's kind of what hooked me into it. And uh, and and you remember what the twist was, right? Yeah, uh, kind of vaguely, vaguely. So if you don't want to say, if you want to say it, that's fine. If you don't, like, because I have seen the movie. Uh, All right. Well, okay. If you if you do if you haven't seen Apollo eighteen, which uh, upon retrospect is uh, nine years old, <laughs> so uh, kind of a bit of a leeway. Um, f- okay, so I'm going to go into it. Oh, last oh, warning. I, I remember what happened now. Okay, go ahead. Yeah moon spiders yeah just holy fucking shit moon spiders (laughs) which you know sounds kind of silly but fucking moon spiders man yeah no i I get it i get it um i mean like that like that one bit where like it's inside the other guy's suit and you can see it in his visor and yeah yeah oh man just um again it's just like some is something about all these scenes is just so haunting yeah, you know, I I like I know people got tired of it for a while and I think people are still some people are still tired of it. I like found mm-hmm. footage. I even some of the weaker ones I will still find enjoyment of. I like that act of scanning the frame looking for something hidden in the background, which, you know, paranormal activity did that a lot where you're just you're looking for anything oh, yeah. nothing there. But um no, I like, I just like, I don't know. I like that. I like the subtlety that can come with found footage of hiding something like off center a little bit or, right. or how kind of unexpected it can be. I, I like the genre. No, I'm with you. Like it, and as you know, it's proven with our prior discussions of Norroy and Lake Mungo, like uh, sometimes the most subtle found footage movies are the most effective. So I'm going to go with my uh, my next pick and I'm going to go with. Um, uh, I, I'm just looking at my list. I have a couple of alternates and I'm, I'm deciding, but I'm going to go with Grave Encounters. Um, oh, that's a good one. I I need to watch it again. Uh, <clears throat> I need to watch it again, but I really dug. Uh, the explicit supernatural nature of this movie i liked how Mm -hmm. 
the like the building itself was kind of screwing with the people inside like how how doorways would move and stairways would not be there and just how like they couldn't trust their surroundings at all it's probably my favorite part about Blair Witch too is that like the the geography stops making sense they're not where they should be at a certain point and I, I just like that yeah. trope. I like that trope every time it comes up. But Grave Encounters had a couple of really great jolts and then also kind of a really, really eerie, almost Silent Hill vibe at times and just how like kind of weird the building got. Yeah, no, I, I was a big fan of that too, that uh, it, it just went beyond what you would expect from a typical ghost haunting. Like it just has these uh, non-Euclidean corridors like, it just it's it, like the asylum is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside yeah it's like it's like um in the shining you know how kubrick intentionally built the hotel to not make sense so that it would have tracking shots yeah and rooms would not would be in areas where you would like subconsciously realize they shouldn't be there and it's like somebody like really took that idea and made a, a movie around it and uh and yeah, I, I really dug it. I really, really liked that one. Well, I'm with you on that. Did you see the sequel? I did. I I don't remember as much about that one. I remember thinking it was good still, but it just didn't like stick with me as much. Yeah, I think yeah, I think I kind of like the first one better too. Uh, but anyway, uh, for my next entry, I'm gonna go with the Taking of Deborah Logan by Adam Robital. Yeah, that's that that's a i don't know why i just interrupted you but yes that's a great one <laughs> yeah it's it's that good uh but yeah basically it's about a documentary crew following the uh, titular deborah logan for a documentary on alzheimer's um and you know like following her behavior and recording her through the night and and like how her health will either uh, decline or get better but the more they follow her, the more they realize there's more than just uh, like a mental disease affecting her and shit gets crazy. Yeah. It, it has one image in particular that seems to have really scarred. A oh yeah. Viewers. <laughs> uh, that's a good one. Like I can already, yeah, I can already tell uh, which one you're referring to. That That's a really good one. Um, that's one I, I need to show my my partner. Taking Deborah Logan. That's that's a classic. It is. It's a it, it's a great one. So my next one is is yeah, maybe modern more, classic. Yeah. Uh, so my my, I guess we're not. I'm not ranking these, but my number five, um, mm. is maybe not considered. Oh wait, no, it's my number four. I skipped my around, didn't I? <laughs> okay. Yeah, so I think we're one, at four now. Yeah, yeah. So it, we are. I just I don't know why I skipped around. Uh, but anyway, my next one, it's not necessarily a classic or not believed to be a classic. I'm going to go with The Bay, uh. which I don't know if you've seen it. It is Barry Levinson, I believe. Yeah. Barry Levinson attempting to do a found footage horror film. And it, I mean, you think of Barry Levinson, this is not necessarily what you think of. It's kind of a, a change from him, and a lot of people kind of uh, viewed it as a failure. But I, I really liked it. I liked how it tried to change what a found footage movie 
could be or what a found footage was in that it, it took a whole bunch of um it took a lot of sources instead of some person running around with a camera following a group it followed a whole town and took sources or footage from you know security cameras cell phones uh home videos news like it, it just like it told a much bigger story than a lot of found footage tries and while i don't think it's the scariest i don't think it all completely worked i like that type of experimentation especially from you know barry levinson who's who does like prestige dramas and he was 70 years old at the time and and trying a completely new type of storytelling with technology he'd never used before and uh you know basing it around an exaggerated but real ecological threat like it, it's a movie that i kind of like i appreciate its ambition even if it doesn't succeed at all times yeah you know it's funny you bring that up because uh i remember seeing it in theaters and I didn't really care for it at the time, so I have been meaning to uh, rewatch it and give another shot. But yeah, when I first, but yeah, when I first saw it, didn't really do it for me. Although I do love the concept and the idea, because uh, that that was the other thing too. That was a rip from the headlines type of story, because yeah. at the time those horrible mouth parasites were kind of in the news because they were found in a bunch of fish. Like they like removed the tongues. And would nestle in the mouths of fish. Yeah, there's there's a some docu documentary stuff on the special features for the DVD that mm. that is very interesting and makes the movie actually. I felt a little bit. I felt it made the movie a little bit better. Um, I don't want to tell you that this movie is a lost classic. Like I said, I, I admit not all of, not all of it works. That there mm. are scarier and more like more successful movies out there in the genre i i just kind of really appreciated what it was going for right all right well uh for me next i would like to mention uh vhs2 like i, I i'm a big fan of the vhs franchise because <laughs> yeah, it's a combination of two of my favorite subgenres, uh, uh anthology and found footage and, yeah. uh, and of the three, because there was VHS, VHS2, and VH, uh, uh, what was the third one? VHS Viral? Uh, yes, yes, VHS Viral. Um, although apparently there's a fourth one on the way, so looking forward to that too. But uh, the, but yeah, this one, number two, was uh, my favorite of the franchise so far. And, uh, probably come as no surprise because it's uh the one that gareth evans of uh the raid di uh, directed or co-directed uh with safe haven you know the cult one yeah so just you know that you know that story alone is such a mind blower but also there's some other good ones in there like you got uh, jason eisner of hobo with a shotgun doing the only abduction story uh, you got Eduardo Sanchez from uh, Blair Witch Project doing one with like a GoPro on a zombie, uh, like Ad an Adam Wingard ghost story, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, you know, I, f I feel like it was um, pretty fun, especially out of out of the three movies. It was yeah. It, on whole, VHS two is 
an improvement over VHS one. Mm-hmm. And I love that the one you did, the Gareth Evans one was great. My favorite segment in all of the VHS movies, though, is in part one. I love that final segment, the one on Halloween night at the oh, yeah, October 31st, 1998. That that is my favorite short film in that series. I love that one. But like you, I really love anthology films like even even the bad ones. I just like. Yeah, I, I, I like the short form. I like the, you know, the like sitting around a campfire, hearing a tell scary mm-hmm. story style, like like you're just trading scary stories with people. I, I really like anthologies and mixing it with found footage was a good idea. I'm I'm surprised they didn't make more. Honestly, I guess it, it wasn't. I mean, it all comes down to money, I suppose. But it just seems like they were such big hits at the time. Yeah, well, any number of reasons. But again, you know, there is another one on the way. Just, uh, yeah, who knows when it's coming. But, um, yeah, no, the uh, number two is is my favorite of, of the uh, three so far. Yeah, no, I agree. It's the same thing. Okay, so now my final one, right? This is this is it. Yeah, uh, we're on number five. Yep, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with Creep. Oh, nice. With um, oh, what's Mark Duplass. Mark Duplass. Mark Duplass. Uh, and and I'll even I'll even say Creep too. We can just do them in as a duology. But yeah. Creep, Creep is a movie that I I kind of wasn't sure where it was going. Every time I thought I had a read on it, and that like by design that character is is always shifting. Yeah, it ends in. Like, I don't know. I got such a kick out of that ending. You've seen it, right? Oh yeah. Okay, so I don't I don't need to spoil it, but the ending, it was such a great payoff to that movie. Yeah, no, and you know, Duplass just you know, he lived up to the title. He he played like just one of the creepiest characters imaginable. Yeah, yeah. Like what a creepy peach fuzz thing. Did you see the sequel? Uh yeah, yeah. I thought the I thought the sequel was good. Uh they, Oh yeah, no, I thought it was great did what they could do you know like like it was it was the right way to go with continuing that story oh no definitely it was an interesting twist on uh you know how to do a sequel uh so what do you what do you got for your uh for your final pick of the day all right well uh i'm gonna go with adam green's digging up the marrow uh, have you seen that i have oh yeah that i don't know why that didn't occur to me but that's a good choice yeah, no, it's very underrated. But uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, like, you know, Adam Green's directed a bunch of horror movies like Hatchet and Frozen and all that. And this is kind of a meta movie where he's uh, where he plays himself and he's been uh, reached out to by this guy named Decker who believes there is like a hidden city of monsters underground. And he's played by uh, Ray Wise, like. Uh, just and like pure Ray Wise and connecting into Twin Peaks, like he does have a bit of a uh, Leyland Palmer vibe to him. Uh, but uh, yeah, like it's just very, it's very creepy. Uh, um, like there, there's some great scenes of tension, and uh, the monsters, uh, there are monsters in the movie, and they were designed by uh, uh, Alex Party, so they just like really out there, just really original. And admittedly, this is a bit of a selfish choice because uh, I I am in the movie. Oh wow! Yeah, I mean, not, 
nothing big just like i'm in the background of a scene at like a signing at dark delicacies you can actually see me getting strangled by kane hotter oh well that i mean guess i guess two two high points of that one visit huh it's <laughs> true very true like i got his autograph and uh one hell of a photo nice yeah, but no, he was, it, you know, it was, it was super fun and I'm really glad I got to do that. But uh, yeah, no, there's the movies. Uh, yeah, no, just very interesting take on kind of a found footage mockumentary uh, type of deal. So I, I, so if you love monsters and found footage, like that's definitely your type of movie. It, it, no, it's a very fun movie and I love monsters. And Who doesn't? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I think that will do it for us uh before we go do you have anything that you want to um you want to promote anything you want to plug uh yes i'd like to promote uh my own podcast uh i on or uh for ihor.com which i uh, co-host with uh jonathan manuel korea and james edwards uh you know it's horror horror podcast where we talk about uh, you know horror movies we've got guests and interviews uh talk uh, we do talk a lot about uh, recent releases, and especially with this year, we talk a lot about home video and physical media releases. That sounds great. I um, I kind of have to live vicariously through like people's home movie or home video, like so, uh, physical media these days. I I just like I see. Yeah, all... it's just just the world we live in right now. You know. Well, it, it's what a goddamn year. <laughs> oh man, you were telling me. Like all of these great companies are coming out of the woodwork, releasing these amazing, like can't miss releases. And I just have to sit there and look at it all and be like, ah, oh, you lucky bastards. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, it's kind of, yeah, I mean, you know, that's the thing. We can't really go to the movies, so we have to get the movies to come to us. Very true. Very true. Uh, but yeah, I look forward to listening to that. Everybody should check it out. I, I really want to thank you for doing this. This was a lot of fun. We'll have to talk, and I, I know there were a couple of ideas we tossed around, and uh, I definitely want to revisit some of those, so we'll have to have you back on here sooner rather than later. Oh, yeah, I'd love to be back, and uh, thanks for having me again on the show. Hey, no problem. Uh, as for me, I would like to all promote or mention uh, my partner, Amber. She uh, recently she recently created a series of enamel pins for MetallicDiceGames.com. Uh, you can check them out at metallicdicegames.com. They do, you know, dice and dice-related gaming accessories. Um, they're a great company, and they have been kind enough to give me a 10% off code for all of you listeners. So if you check them out and you like what you see, I'll post some links on the Twitter and Instagram. I have. They're there. Um, if you like what you see, just enter the code two heads at checkout, T-W-O-H-E-A-D-S, and that'll get you 10% off your order. And for the podcast, if you're enjoying it, thank you for showing up here. Uh, please like, rate, review, subscribe, wherever you get your podcast or this one in particular from. And, uh, you know, tell your friends. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And that is Two Headed Pod at both places. Thanks again to Jacob. And thank you for listening. We will see you next week.